Hello, this is going to be a reteaching of the lesson of chapter 5 of Revelation, verses 1 through 14, through Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Um, this, this recording is going to be different from the other ones if you've been listening on the website to uh, my teaching of the book Revelation. This one's going to be a little bit different because of the fact that this one is being taped again. Uh, the Bible study has already occurred, but unfortunately there was a problem with the recorder on that day, and so the Bible study itself has not been recorded. I'm now re-recording my lesson uh, by myself, so there is no group of people here listening. Uh, there's not going to be any discussion like there typically is in our study for listening, but we're making this recording just so that uh, people who are following along online can keep up to date with where, we, where we've been and where we, where we are. Uh, that's why this recording is going to be sounding a little bit different. If you're tuning in, you say, wait a minute, where are the people? Uh, that night's recording did not record, so I'm just re-recording the lesson so we can keep you up to speed uh, with where we are. So this is in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 14. It says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now this chapter here of Revelation, chapter 5, uh, you'll hear me say many times, is... It's a key part of this uh, whole study of the book of Revelation. It is a linchpin almost, uh, in a sense, because if you don't understand what's happening next in the book of Revelation, what's happening in this chapter, you won't understand what's really going to be going on, in the, and especially in the chapters that follow. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at this scroll, and what's the, mo what's the importance of the scroll, and what does it represent? Now in order to do that, we need to understand that in the Old Testament there are three different laws of redemption. And uh, for example, we have the law of leveret marriage, where you need a kinsman redeemer. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Uh, God had given instructions in Deuteronomy that if a, a man was living... And 
and he and his wife produced no children, and then the man dies before he produced any children, his brother was to take this his brother's wife and, as his own wife and produce offspring for his brother through her. Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz. This is a picture of that, where uh, Ruth's husband passes away, and uh, they have no children. A kinsman redeemer, Boaz, comes and takes her to be his wife and produces children through her in the line of Ruth's husband. Uh, as you, if you know, uh, actually uh, Obed was born and then Jesse came from Obed and through Jesse, of course, came David. And Jesus came through that story. And so we see in the Old Testament there is a way to redeem the bride, if you will, the wife, the bride. And this is a picture of Jesus and what he has accomplished for us in redeeming us as his bride, the church. In 1 Peter chapter 1, listen to verses 18 through 23. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Here we see in in verse 18 that it wasn't with perishable things such as silver or gold that we were redeemed from the empty way of life, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. We were redeemed. The church has been redeemed. The bride has been redeemed through Jesus Christ on the cross. So we see a picture in the Old Testament of the redeeming of the bride or the redeeming of the wife, and that is fulfilled in Jesus and what he did on the cross. There was also another uh, term of redemption, if you will, or a law of redemption, and that was the redeeming of the slave. If you do study of Scripture, you'll see that the slaves were to be set free every seven years. They served as a slave for six years. On the seventh year, they were set free. Now, if the slave chose to sign back up, if you will, to be a slave again with their owner uh, or their master, they could do so, but they were to be set free every seventh year. Also in the year of Jubilee, they were to be set free. And God had set conditions or terms, if you will, for the redeeming or the freeing of the slave. Now, in the book of Romans, we don't have the time to really turn there in our study tonight, but uh, in the book of Romans, chapter 6, the Bible talks about how our bodies are slaves to sin. Now, at this point, though, in the book of Revelation, where John is up in heaven, uh, the rapture, I believe, has already occurred. We've seen he's supposed to write about what was, uh, what he saw, what is, and what is to come. And he saw what he saw on, on, the, earth, on the Isle of Patmos there. And then he wrote about the church age. And at the end of the church age, if you remember from our study, uh, that same voice, Jesus, that he heard on the earth, he now hears from heaven. And a door's open in heaven and says, come up here, I'll show you what must take place after this. And then from that point on, John is in heaven and he watches everything else unfold on the earth from a grandstand view, if you will, from heaven. I believe at the point where, where John sees Jesus opening the scrolls, I believe not only has the bride been redeemed, but the slave. Remember, the slave is our body, and the, the, our bodies have been redeemed at this point, at the rapture. Let me read to you from Romans uh, chapter 8, and see if that helps and clarifies it a little bit more. Remember, our bodies are slaves to sin. When you got saved, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, He gave you His Spirit, and you were a new creation. But that salvation really had no effect on your physical body. Your cholesterol didn't drop. You didn't lose 15 pounds. Your body's still deteriorating. Your body's still under the curse of sin. Your body's still a slave to sin. 
You know, the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, at the rapture, though, is when we get our new bodies. Those who have gone to be with the Lord already are with Him, but they don't have their eternal bodies yet. That doesn't happen until the time of the rapture. Remember, in First Thessalonians 4, 13-18, the Scripture teaches that at that time, Jesus comes back in the clouds with those who have come, gone to be with Him. They're with Him. Their bodies come up out of the ground. Those of us who are alive at that time are going to be changed. We're going to be transformed. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, let me tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. We're not all going to die, but we're all going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, when the perishable takes on imperishable. In Romans chapter 8, listen to what it says here in Romans chapter 8, uh, starting in verse um, 18, and then we'll go through verse 23. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that be revealed will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, listen closely, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? And then he said, goes on to say, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here, it simply says that we're, the redemption of our bodies is what we're looking forward to. That's going to happen at the rapture. Creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. So, we see already now there's two of the three that we've talked about already here uh, that we're going to talk about. There's three laws of redemption, two of them we've discussed. One is the law of redeeming the bride and the lever at marriage one, and that one has been fulfilled at the cross. We also have the law of redeeming the slave. That will occur at the rapture. Now there's a third law of redemption in the Old Testament that is pointing to things in, in the New Testament and in, in the world to come, and that is the law of redeeming the land. Go in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 25. Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 25. And you'll see here this third law of redemption, the, re the law of redeeming the land. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, this is what it says. It says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. This is God speaking. And you are but aliens and my tenants. Now throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. Again, just in the same way in the law of redeeming the bride, if uh, uh, someone lost their, 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 their husband, uh, the bride could be redeemed by a near relative, a kinsman redeemer. In the same way, if someone lost the land that they owned for their families and for their, their tribes, uh, a near relative could buy it back to keep it in the family. Now, in Psalm 24, let's, let's go ahead and turn there. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, the scripture is very, very clear that the earth belongs to God. All right? We're going to take a look at that. Psalm 24, listen to verses 1 and 2. It says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Let me read that again. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now, the scripture is very, very clear that the earth is the Lord's. We just saw that in Leviticus 25. It's not to be sold permanently because it's God's. Now, back in Genesis, though, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that after God created the world, and created the earth, and created man, he then gave dominion, if you will, to mankind to rule the earth. He gave them authority over the earth, over the plants, over the, the creatures on the earth. He leased the earth, it's, it's still his, but he leased it to man, to Adam and Eve. Unfortunately, because of their sin, they subleased it. They lost possession, if you will, and dominion over the land. Who is the ruler of the world right now? The ruler of the prince of this world is Satan. He is the prince of power of of this air. Now, God is ultimately sovereign, and he's ultimately in control, but Satan has been given authority on this earth for a time. Why? Because we lost the dominion of the land. Now, here's the cool thing. What they used to do Back in those days, when someone lost the land, the terms for getting it back were written on two scrolls. Okay, The same terms were written on two separate scrolls. And then one of them was rolled up and sealed with seven seals and put inside the temple. The other one was left unsealed and it was put out into the public area, uh, like a courtyard or like on a cork board or a bulletin board area kind of a thing, where people could come by and they could see what the terms for redeeming the land were for that person who lost it. Now, if you were a near relative and you were able to meet the terms and the conditions, you went into the temple and you said, I am a near relative. Relative, a kinsman redeemer, if you will, of so and so who lost their property, I'm able to open the scrolls and redeem the land. Now, let me let me just kind of clarify this for you a little bit. Go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. We're going to look at verses 6 through 15. In Jeremiah chapter 32. Verses 6 through 15. Look at what Jeremiah says. It says, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth. Because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, My cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. Now I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth for my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Now, Jeremiah knows that God has prophesied that that the the nation of Israel is going to go into captivity. 
Jeremiah's near relative comes and says, I want you to buy my property. He does so. He then puts the terms in which he, he met in a, in a sealed copy, and an unsealed copy, and he put them in a clay jar so that later on, when people were able to come back to the land after Jeremiah was dead, uh, that they would know who owned the land and what terms had been met, and they would stay in the, in the family's name. So again, we see this picture. When someone lost their land, the terms for getting it back were written on a scroll and sealed with seven seals. Only somebody who was able to meet the terms and conditions and who was a near relative was able to open the seven seals. Now, go back to Revelation chapter 5. Listen again now and see how much more clear this passage is. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. And then who comes? Jesus, looking like a lamb who had been slain. And he begins to open the seals. That's what we're going to start looking at tonight in this study. But I want you to understand, the scroll is representing the terms and conditions for God getting his land back. It's his. It's been his all along. But he gave it to us. He gave us dominion over it. We lost it because of the fall and because of sin. Satan has been given authority in the land and on the earth for a long time. But at this point in history, at this point, during the tribulation period now, during this last seven year period for the nation of Israel, God, Jesus Himself, is coming to open the scroll and open the seals. And every time He opens a seal, what happens? Something you'll see begins to happen on the earth. And this scroll represents the getting back of the land that belongs to the Lord. And by the end of the seven year period, after He's opened all the seals and all the things have happened, the earth becomes His again. And Jesus comes back and He steps foot on the earth and He rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And we go through the millennium or the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. So folks, this is a very important chapter. And when Jesus begins to open the seals, or when he has the seal, the scroll ready to open it, the elders and others begin to praise him, for he is worthy to open the scroll. Why? Not only is he God, and it's his, and is he related in that way, he's also man, and he was sinless. Man, because of sin, lost their ability to get the land back. But Jesus was sinless and is sinless, and he is able to open the scroll. So what is happening at this time in the book of Revelation? Remember, the bride has already been redeemed, and the rapture has already occurred, so the body has already been redeemed. But we've got our new bodies at this point. And now the land, the last law of redemption, is being accomplished. Alright? Now I sure hope that is helpful for somebody out there uh, that's listening, because it's such a key part. So now as we begin to open the seals and, and take a look at these seals, we're going to look at the first four and the rest of this study. Uh, as we do so, I want you to see what's going on. Jesus is opening the seals, and he's meeting the terms of getting his land back. Alright? So, let's go ahead and begin in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice, or a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a white horse. 
Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. And its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other, and to him was given a large sword. Now when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, I don't know if you've grasped it or not, but uh, when Jesus begins the process of meeting the terms of getting the land back, it's going to start to get even worse on the earth than it is now. We're watching things culminate. We're watching things build up right to that point. We're going to talk a little bit more about that at the end of this study. But for right now, let's just take some time to take a look at what happens when he opens each of these first four seals. So we're going to start with the first seal. Now the first seal uh, is a white horse that comes out. And uh, we see that there's a rider on it, and he has a bow, and he's given a crown, and he rides out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now I want you to understand, this is not Jesus. And I'll explain to you why. This white horse rider is the Antichrist, the false Jesus. Now, there are those who try to say this is Jesus riding out. But yes, the scripture does talk about how, and we're going to see that later on in in the study of Revelation, how Jesus rides on a white horse. And we come with him as he sets up his kingdom. But I want you to understand, when Jesus rides on a white horse, he immediately sets up his kingdom and has authority. This rider rides out on his white horse, sets to, and, and he has some conquest, if you will, but everlasting peace and righteousness does not follow him. It gets worse and worse and worse. That's not how it is when Jesus rides out to set up his kingdom. It will not get worse and worse and worse. It'll get better and better. So this is not Jesus. This is the Antichrist. All right, we want you to see that. Remember Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 shows us that the Antichrist will sign a covenant with many at the beginning of Israel's last seven year period, which is left. Uh, We've done that study already and there's one last seven year period left for the nation of Israel. That's why this is important to understand the the prophetic uh, importance of of the nation of Israel becoming a nation again in 1948 and how many I mean almost 2,000 years they did not exist because of their punishment uh, for rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. God scattered them but the scripture says in Ezekiel that one day in other places he's going to gather them back to the land from which he scattered them from all the nations to which he scattered them and in those days he was going to finish his plan for them and Daniel talks about that there's a one seven year period left even though they're back in the land they're, uh, the bones have come together, the dry bones if you will from Ezekiel 37 have come together but there's still no breath of God in them yet they, they're up and moving around but they don't believe in Jesus yet, they don't believe in God yet but one day he's going to breathe his breath of life and spirit into them and they're going to believe in him but right now they're up and moving around uh, and so the Antichrist is going to come and he is going to set out bent on conquest, now he's going to set, uh, sign a peace treaty with the nation of Israel and other nations uh, for a seven year period it appears 
So that's the first thing we see is that Jesus opens the seal and the Antichrist begins his conquest by signing a peace treaty. Now, keep in mind, this is further evidence that I believe the Bible teaches that we don't know who the Antichrist is and we won't know unless we're up in heaven and watching from there because Thessalonians talks about how uh, he who restrains has to be taken out of the way before the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness is revealed. I believe without question that the the he who restrains is the Holy Spirit's work through the life of the church. There are those who teach that the Holy Spirit has to be removed from the earth for, for, for the Antichrist to be revealed. But I don't believe that because if the, if the Holy Spirit is totally removed from the earth, no one will be saved. There's no one who can come to faith in Jesus Christ because the Spirit has to draw them. But if the Spirit's working through the salt and the light of the church has been removed, that's the restrainer. That is the one who's going to be removed so that the Antichrist can do what he wants. Let's be honest. Right now, just think how bad this world would be if there weren't these uh, Christians, we Christians who are standing up for truth and righteousness and God's word and fighting against many of the things that are happening in this world. Of course, they consider us right-wingers and they consider us terrorists and all that because of our faith in God and belief in the Bible. But at the same time, we are, even though we're losing our saltiness, unfortunately, we're still salt and we're still light and we've slowed the decay in this world. But the moment the church is gone, the Antichrist will be able to convince everybody that he is able to bring peace on this earth. No, no one world ruler is going to be able to do that with Christians still on the earth, they'd stand up. I pray they'd stand up and they'd speak for God and for truth. And so right now I want you to understand the Antichrist is the rider on the white horse. Now the second horse we see is the red horse, which equals war. Alright, now listen to what it says again. It says, When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other, and to him was given a large sword. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Can you even imagine what that will be like since things are as bad as they are right now? Um, I mean, at this point in the tribulation, there's going to be war that breaks out on the earth. Now, look how closely, look closely how it says, he was given power to take peace from the earth. How many of us realize how much God is restraining evil right now. I don't know if many people really have taken the time to consider how much God is restraining evil. Think back to the story of Job and how Satan wanted to mess with Job, but he couldn't because God kept him from messing with him. And Satan says the only reason that he loves you is because you protect him and you've got this hedge of protection around him and I can't touch him. You take away the hedge and he'll curse you to your face. And so what did God do? God gave permission for Satan. Satan said, you can't. I mean, God said to Satan, you can't touch Job, but you can do whatever else you want. And what did Satan do? He killed all of Job's children. He killed all of his livestock. He took everything he had except for his wife. And later on we find out why he, t- he left Job's wife, because uh, Job's wife was already on Satan's side, uh, playing for his team a little bit there. But the well, main thing I want you to grasp is this. Satan, if he had the opportunity... If he had the opportunity, you'd be dead. He hates you. He wants nothing to do with you. And God is restraining him. That's why in Luke we see in chapter 22, after Peter had put his profession of his faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now why is Satan asking for permission to mess with Peter? Because Peter is a child of God, so his faith and his righteousness because of his faith can't be touched without Satan asking for permission. But at this point, 
it was given, whoever this rider is on this red horse, it was given him the ability to take peace from the earth. Folks, I'm so glad I'm not going to be here during that time period. I'm so glad the Bible teaches that I'm going to be taken to be with Him before this. This is going to be a bad time. You don't want to be alive at this time. Trust Jesus as your Savior. Please, He's been drawing you in many different ways. He's been been sending His Spirit to open your eyes and your heart. Respond to Him. Say yes to Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the third horse. We see the third horse is the black horse. Now, we see at this point there's going to be hunger and financial hardship. Now, this horse's activity does not appear to affect the wealthy of the super wealthy, but everyone else is going to be struggling just to eat. That's what it talks about here when it says uh, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. You keep in mind, um, uh, those who study scripture and, and understand historical significance of certain passages uh, have come to realize that this is like an eight to ten times increase in what it cost back then for people to be able to eat. Uh, what it cost for a quart of wheat, this is now, it took a whole day's pay just for a quart of wheat. That is actually now uh, an eight to ten time increase. For example, uh, let's just say that uh, gas is two dollars a gallon. At this point, if it's a 10, per, 10 times increase, it, gas will become $20 a gallon. It may be even worse. The super wealthy will not be affected by this, but at this point in the tribulation, um, most everybody else will be, and they will be struggling just to eat, just to put food on the table, taking a whole day's pay just to do that. Now, again, that's just going to be a horrible time and, and, I, and I'm keeping myself from running to my, what we're going to conclude in just a little bit so I'm going to hold off on that and let's take a look at the fourth seal now when the lamb, verse 7, the lamb opened the fourth seal I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and I looked and there before me was a pale horse its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, I want you to see this. This is extremely important. Look at it again. They, death is on this horse, this pale horse. Death is on it. And Hades is following behind. Hades is the place where all those who die apart from Jesus Christ go the instant that they die. In the same way in which we leave this body and go in the presence of God immediately because of Jesus Christ, those who have not trusted Jesus as their Savior, who are still in their sins, they excuse me, instantly go from this life to the place of torment called Hades. Later on, we'll see when we get to chapter 20 of Revelation, they'll come out of Hades and go into the lake of fire. But Hades is a place of fire as well. It's a place of fiery torment. If you don't believe me, go look at Luke chapter 16 a little later on and read the story of Lazarus and the rich man. So at this point, they go out and they've been given authority to kill one quarter of the earth's population. Now, people have trying to done some math, and right now there's about 7 billion people on the earth. Uh, let's just assume that a billion are taken in the rapture. Uh, that might be a high number, but let's just assume that a billion. That still leaves 6 billion people. A quarter of that is going to be killed at one time. Just think about that. Think about That's way more. That's almost 10 to 20 times as many as were killed in all of World War II. And there were millions that were killed in World War II. 10 to 20 times as much as were killed in World War II are all going to be killed at one time at this point. And what is the way in which they're killed? Look closely. They're going to be killed by sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth at that point. 
Now, as you've heard me say over and over, uh, Revelation is not a new book that was written later on and added on to make Christians feel better, saying, hey, hang on, we're going to win. Actually, most of what we read in Revelation has been written in other parts of the Bible already, has been prophesied already. Revelation ties it together for us a little bit more. So, uh, I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 14. Go back to the book of Ezekiel and turn to chapter 14. And look at verses 12 through 23. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 12 through 23. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its men and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, They could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Or if I send wild beasts through that country and they leave it childless and it becomes desolate so that no one can pass through it because of the beasts, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword against that country and say, let the sword pass through the land and I kill its men and their animals, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it and they could not save their own sons or daughters, they alone would be saved. Or if I send a plague into that land and pour out my wrath upon it through bloodshed, killing its men and their animals, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save neither son nor daughter, they would save only themselves by their righteousness." For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague, to kill its men and their animals? Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it. They will come to you, and when you see their conduct and their actions, you will be consoled regarding the disaster I have brought upon Jerusalem. Every disaster I have brought upon it, you will be consoled when you see their conduct and their actions. For you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, declares the Sovereign Lord. Now, if you look closely at this, it starts in verse 12 and says, and actually verse 13, that if a country sins and he sends famine, this might be one of the ways he brings judgment. Then he goes and says in verse 15, or if he sends wild beasts, or in verse 17, if he brings a sword. Or in verse 19, if he sends a plague. Doesn't that sound interesting? He says that any country, if any country sins, and I send these, the only way they can be spared is if they're righteous. Now we understand this righteousness does not come from us. Our righteousness, the scripture says, is as filthy rags. We are given righteousness by God as a gift. It's nothing we've done. And folks, if you understand yourself like I understand myself, I thank God that my righteousness comes from Him and not from me, or else I'd be in trouble. But then he goes on in verse 21 to say, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague? And what do we see here in Revelation chapter 6? When the fourth seal was opened, death and Hades were given power to kill a quarter of the earth, not just in Jerusalem, but over the whole earth. And it was done by sword, and famine, and plague and wild beasts. Folks, what I think we need to do in the time that we're going to use now just to kind of draw this study to a close is this. I've been studying prophecy for over 20 years. 
And to be honest with you, I have read these passages in the study of the seven seals. And as I've read about these seals, I knew that these were coming one day. I knew that the Scripture's true. And these things were going to happen. But in the back of my mind, I knew that it was still a little bit off before, a few years off, if you will, before these things would happen. Because let's just take the Antichrist, for example. For this one ruled ruler, this one person to come out and declare himself to be the ruler over the whole world. Well, I knew that I lived in a country, the United States, which, which would not let that happen. I mean, think back when Hitler tried to be that one world ruler. America rose up and, with their allies, defeated Hitler and his armies. And folks, I knew in the back of my mind, America was such a country that it would not let that happen. But you know what? Things have changed. And I have to be honest with you, I can see tomorrow how, you know, of course, it's not going to happen until the rapture occurs, of course, but if that were to happen, our country would be a lot more willing today, would they not, unfortunately? And wouldn't our leadership be a lot more willing for a one-world government and a one-world leader? It's a scary thing to say, but folks, listen to me. The, the white horse could happen tomorrow, and our country probably wouldn't stop it. Then I looked at the red horse, and I think about the fact that there's always been wars and rumors of wars, but right now we're at a point where we're checking the computer or watching the news every day to see whether or not Israel has bombed Iran, or Iran has bombed Israel, or whether or not uh, um, Afghanistan has blown up, or whether or not the Taliban has got nuclear weapons, or whether or not Russia uh, is, is involved. And it appears that they're working with all of America's enemies to uh, kind of work against us. And folks, we are on the brink of war all over this world. It could happen in a second. It could happen in a, in a split second. It could happen now. Then we look at the black horse and the financial ruin. Think about it this way. Is it not possible that the United States dollar could collapse? Isn't it already happening right now? And all of a sudden, as much as things are tough right now financially, things could get exponentially worse. Where the money we even have in the bank, which is shrinking, would be worth nothing. And then all of a sudden, people are struggling to be able to eat a day's wages for a quart of wheat. Folks, you know what? There's been famines and there's been plagues and there's been swords and there's been wild beasts all throughout the earth as we see in the fourth seal. But you know what? All these things could happen tomorrow. Now, I don't know when the rapture is going to occur. I don't know when the Antichrist is going to be revealed and sign the seven-year treaty with Israel and all these seals begin to be opened by Jesus. But I know this much. We are so much closer now on the world stage than we have been in years past. Now, I believe the rapture could have happened at any moment. The rapture is not something that needs a certain thing to happen before it occurs. It's been imminent from the beginning. But all these other things we've been reading about in Scripture, certain things had to be in place, like the nation of Israel even being a nation of Israel again. As we know, the Antichrist is going to step into the temple, and at some point there's going to have to be a rebuilding of the temple. But I do know this much. That's not going to happen until halfway through the tribulation. It could be being built as a part of that peace treaty that he signs. But as I look at these four seals, the Antichrist, the one world ruler, the war breaking out, peace being taken from the earth, the financial collapse across the world, the plagues, we're worried about swine flu and other epidemics, weapons of mass destruction and Biological warfare. Folks, do you not understand that we're getting close? 
We're getting close to these prophecies being fulfilled. Do you not understand that every prophecy in the Scripture that has happened has happened to the day literally as it did, and that means these will too. There has not been one prophecy proven not true. It means these are going to happen just like that, and we are getting close. Folks, if you're listening out there right now on the, on the webcast of this and uh, on, through my website, and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I pray that you'll stop what you're doing right now and respond to the Spirit of God who's giving you one last opportunity to trust that what Jesus did covers your sins. Not because of your righteousness, but because of Jesus's. And you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness. I believe that you lived without sin. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you took my punishment on the cross. And I ask that you will cover me with your blood. Give me righteousness. My life is yours. I thank you for tuning in to this uh, re-recording of this part of the study. I hope it's been helpful. See you next week.